A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today we are reading through chapter 29 in Iron Gold. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I'm really excited to talk about what I'm drinking today because I have no idea what it's called yet. <laughs> it is it is kind of a fun episode that way. Today is going to be our fifth episode covering Iron Gold by Pierce Brown, and we're going to be talking about chapters 25 through 29. Should be a really good time. We've got a lot of a lot of ground to cover today. Yeah, we do. It's a dense bit of chapters. <laughs> where where last week is almost the same number of pages. This week has like three times as much going on. It's a lot, but it'll be good. So before we get into that, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having? So all I can tell you at the moment is it's really fucking good. <laughs> I <laughs> I just kind of threw a bunch of shit at the wall and saw what stuck. So basically what I went with was two ounces of rye whiskey, an ounce of Chambord, half an ounce of rosemary simple syrup, four dashes of orange bitters, the juice of one lime, an egg white, which I all shook together. And then garnished it with a lime wedge and two cocktail cherries. And I had no idea. It, it It's kind of inspired by and built upon a whiskey sour, but I wasn't sure exactly what to call it. So before we started this episode, I threw it up on Instagram and Twitter to see if we can uh, crowdsource some names for it. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but it is absolutely delicious i really 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 am enjoying this yeah it looks really good and i was like in my in my head before we were going into this episode i was throwing around a bunch of like names of different people inside of the series and i just i didn't say them out loud because nothing really struck me um i'm very intrigued i wonder if we'll get cocktail mccocktail face as an option or an answer (laughs) i would not not be shocked um it would be you know the most common internet answer at this point yeah that's probable Probably to come through, but what are, what are you chasing that up with? I am chasing that with a mommy dearest, which is double dry hop, double IPA from Blackstack that they released for mother's day. So it is Citra triumph, Zeka Sabro and Sabro cryo hops. Sounds tasty. It is. It's really tasty, but everything that Blackstack does is tasty. So, (laughs) you know, yeah. What have you got? I am out of the beer that Zeph and you gave me. So I I had to buy the final couple of beers for uh, the package that I'm sending you both out back for the beers that you mailed me. And so what I've got here is Jorts Party, which is from Wilmington Brewing Company. I know I've had this before on the cocktail or on the on the cocktail on the podcast. (laughs) And it is it is fantastic. I'm talking about my beer before I'm talking about my cocktail. But very good warrior mosaic and mosaic hops um, has has kind of a dry hopped. It's a juicy India IPA and it is fucking amazing. One of my favorite beers out here for sure. I think you might have brought some last time you were in Minnesota and let me try some. It was really, really solid. Really good. I think I might have. Now that you say that. Or maybe a different one from Wilmington. I can't remember. 
Yeah, I definitely. Well, I definitely brought Wilmington Brewing Company. The question is which one, but I feel like I did bring George Party. Now that you say that, one of my mainstays. So that will be coming to you and Mr. Hawaiian, Mr. Logan. And then my cocktail is kind of an old standby, which I think is why my brain naturally skipped over it. Because looking at it, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, it's one of those again. I'm having an old fashioned once again. There are a number of reasons for this. The most prominent one is that we are starting to film some cocktail construction content. Uh, you saw kind of PJ's first shot at doing the Venusian Fury, which is just kind of our, our low grade. You know, we, we just wanted to see if we could make something interesting and wanted to share the process. What I've done is I'm I'm cutting together a short form TikTok style build of an old fashioned just to show how uh, how we do it with, you know, our swear words and such. It was, it was a good time. So I just wanted to, you know, make it and also make the video content at the same time. And uh, let me tell you it. This one is particularly tasty. I went a little bit heavy, not a little bit. I used an extra dash of grapefruit bitters and it just comes through right on top. But mm -hmm. I added a little bit. of. I do some aromatics, some standard bitters, and then I do uh, generally some citrus as well. Perfect. Uh -huh. Good deal. You, you did show me a little bit of what the video might look like. Or I guess a little bit of B footage, I guess you would call it. And it already looks <laughs> way better than mine did. Mine was dog shit. It looked really bad. Well, <laughs> I know. The reality is, is we didn't really know even what to think about when we were doing it. We were just kind of like, well, let's just let's just give it a go. And even I did that with my regular camera without like a proper tripod. And what came out of it was not good. So I was like, hmm, I'm going to take some time and kind of, you know, reframe this and really kind of bring it up to snuff with everything else that we do. So I'm I'm pretty pleased. Mm -hmm. so far yeah with uh with the two that i've created so should be should be interesting i will share those with you probably next week and with our fans the people who like us the people who listen the people who tolerate us we'll get it never probably, like the day after i'll never you. see the light of day <laughs> unless i have to completely redo it for some reason <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> with that let's go into last week's predictions we really only have one from last week i swear we have more predictions this week to talk about but we only have one and that was how far does darrow get and what are the consequences of what happened well i thought and he would not make it out of orbit he'd get shot down and taken by the senate that didn't happen at all we immediately see him in the oceans of earth we're on fucking terran isn't that wild yeah i mean he didn't get that far away from luna no, that's true. He got true. out of its orbit, I guess. Basically made it out of its orbit. Drink, motherfucker, drink. Because we got shit to do. Yes, we do. All right. So with that single prediction, let's get into the chapters. We start off with Lysander, chapter 25. Something that I want to clarify before we even kind of really dig into the meat of what we're going to be talking about this week is I know that I said on the front end of this that I was trying very hard to balance having each character inside of each section. There are obviously going to be some weeks where that falls flat, so we might be left with, you know, it's it's to best line up with the moments that make the most sense as well for the podcast. But there are some times when it just doesn't work or the page count would be too long. So you'll you'll see some of that variability. But promise we're, we're trying each week to get every single character in the podcast. Chapter 25, Lysander, Lord of the Dust, which kind, kind of a cool name for Romulus. You know, I mean, yeah, dude's fucking crazy not, i mean not quite he's very reasonable actually uh, sure <laughs> i mean he's he's pretty reasonable just not by our standards <laughs> but then by whose standards i mean compare him to the core golds right like that's that's kind of like he's more reasonable mm, i don't know about that uh, 
I'm going with maybe. <laughs> maybe. Sure. <laughs> so what do you make of Lysander naming and pointing out all these people as well as their influence on the society of old? Talking about Romulus, talking about Marius, of course, kind of pointing to all of these people and having all of this inside knowledge already kind of pre-baked, predetermined. I mean, this kind of feels like getting plopped into history. He is experiencing gold society as it was before the rising, which for better or for worse is an interesting thing to see, I think. Yeah. One one thing that I just add to kind of color the context a little bit is with Marius in particular, he knows a lot about Marius. It's as though he's studied all of these people during his time on Luna when he was seven to 10 years old. Yeah. You know, he did, like he, he, he already has so much inside information. Right. He he knew all of the lineages. We talked about that last week, I think. Mm-hmm. So he knows all these people, but at the same time, the way that they're acting and the way that they're conducting themselves is straight out of straight out of what cold society used to be. Yeah. Okay. Fair point. What do you make of Romulus's reaction to Serafina's quest to find out the truth about what happened at the docks? He fucking knows. And you think? he's keeping quiet about it because he knows that's that's the way to maintain stability for his moon and for the rim in general. But he fucking knows. He knows it wasn't Roke. <laughs> how, how would he know, do you think? There were some hints dropped... Not that Darrow actually did this, but that Darrow sort of double-crossed him a little bit and mm-hmm. went back upon his deal, such as burying the exits to the uh, underground hangars, I think. Mm-hmm. Using Which, When they were using the moon to go through. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So it was before the bombing happened, but I don't know what else he knows, but that gives him enough to distrust Darrow and not to take him for his word on... <laughs> I don't know, a pretty big fucking deal that obviously didn't come from Octavia and supposedly just came from Roke as a, as a, I don't know, hissy fit before he left. <laughs> so that's what I got. He he wants to keep the secret as a means of maintaining stability for his people, because okay. if they knew, like, there'd be a fucking riot. Yeah, there's almost no way that it wouldn't devolve into immediate war. Like, there's yeah. almost... No way that wouldn't become a certain war. What do you make of the way various Rim characters hold themselves throughout this section? You know, kind of their their prim and proper. Well, not prim and proper, but their their behavior. You'd probably call the core more prim and po- proper. You know how Lysander calls Serafina's looks very nice, but something a little bit more feral than a lot of the like high ranking golds. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the idea that I got off of the personalities of the golds here. Like, it's almost core golds, but a little bit more feral. Just a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more hostile. That's kind of the read I got on all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's a really, really interesting point because there is, I mean, there's sort of the elongated features and especially with sort of the way that Romulus has let his battles actually scar him versus kind of repairing the wounds, I think is another layer of of sort of interest that lingers above all of these people. They are very severe. Fierce is another word, you know, that fits that feral, I think also matches, but there's something very intense. And I want, part of me wonders if that sort of inspiration is brought from like the sort of Japanese isle nature that they talk about where these folks mostly originated from, where a lot of the language came from, not all, but where, you know, they take some of the basis of language from. So do you think that they kind of adopted some some of the remnants of Japanese imperialism at the same time? 
I don't know about that. I'm thinking strictly sort of the, well, hmm, not the governmental structure, but the cultural structure, perhaps. I mean, they're ob- they're obviously okay. still heavily rooted in stoicism, but there's there's a thin line that you can draw between a lot of Eastern ideas and like they don't clash with stoicism for the most part. So ideology is based around centering yourself and making sure you're grounded and taking life for what it is, is I mean, that's pretty you not. I mean, it's not universal, but it's pretty much it shows up in some facet in most cultures. So I, I think that that's, you know, a that point sense. at the very least. So after going through the brief spell of talking about what was going on with Serafina and sort of the the objective that she was out for and the lie that he's telling to protect her, we get him turning to I mean, do you have any thoughts on the lie or anything like that? The lie, the the so the lie that he's telling everyone else that she went out on a mission and basically that she's dead is what he's going to go back and tell everyone else, even though she's going to live in isolation, basically inside of this mountain. Well, I mean, that kind of feeds into what his his motivations through all of this is to make sure she doesn't get killed or hung for treason. He's he's really kind of in a tight spot here and it feeds into why he decides to execute our boys because that's <laughs> that's a witness. So he his entire motivation is keeping his daughter alive because otherwise she'd be hung as as a traitor. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I, I mean, the line, of course, is guests are invited. You cannot stay. You cannot leave. So the only ride I can afford you is a swift end. And boy, oh boy, especially given what we know about the previous executions that we've witnessed, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> you yeah. could get your entire ankle blown off and then get eaten by bug dogs. Bug dog. <laughs> bug doggies. Eaten. Bug doggies. Cool one. It's good to kind of get the voice, the refreshing voice of Romulus back and to actually get to see him a lot more than just the couple of scenes that he's in in the original in Morningstar. I think it's I think it's cool to have him reintroduced to the story in this way and kind of involving the rim immediately. It's good through Lysander's perspective. Yeah. And I mean, by immediately, you mean halfway through the book. But are we that we're like, OK, we're like two. We're like a little bit over. We're probably close to 40 percent now that you say that. But yeah. OK. Yeah. But we're not quite half while while we're on that topic. As far as the bad guy meter goes, where do you think he lands on that? Because this, this immediately gives him so much reason for all of his actions. I think he ranks really low on the bad guy meter, actually. Where do you think he lands? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think he gets made out to be a really bad guy for these choices, but I don't think they're... I, th- I think they're rooted in exactly what his morals are, which is I'm protecting his family, protecting his daughter. Uh, I'd love to circle back around to this at the once we're done with talking about all of the different Lysander things, because I think that there's something that feeds in, especially when we when we consider Dido. So let's let's roll to that point and then we can kind of bring this in with Dido as well and kind of think about some of those those larger implications. Sounds good. Does that make sense? Cool. Yeah. So the execution, of course, is interrupted by missiles launched by none other than Diomedes. Wait, no, no. Launched by none other than Bellifron. And Serafina's... Oh, wait, no, wait. Why the fuck did I word this this way? This is what happens when I don't get the extra data added my ship. Uh, <laughs> the execution is interrupted by missiles launched from none other than Diomedes and Serafina's mother, Dido. Uh, fuck, <laughs> man. <laughs> I honestly thought that this would have been a reason to hasten the execution, assuming that Romulus would have thought it connected to Cassius and Lysander. 
these outsiders that are kind of mysteriously here. But thankfully, pretty quickly, it's mentioned that the 10 ships didn't come from orbit. So it's clearly not connected to them and he knows exactly who it is. But I was really kind of worried that he was going to be like, oh, fuck, who did you bring here? Kill him. Yeah, it would be interesting to like switch perspectives that way mid book, you know, like just all of a sudden be forced into, I don't know, like Serafina's perspective, for instance. <laughs> That'd yeah. be pretty, pretty wild given the the circumstances that we know and understand. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. whew, it's definitely stressful and you could see it hastening it, but it is good that they get the kind of interception so quick. They're also bargaining chips, so I could see him being willing to hold on to them as bargaining chips to keep them alive. That's if that point. were the case. Or um, to get information but, for who's invading. Yeah, yeah. It's really just one of those four options, basically. You know, he yeah. very well could have just killed them and then dealt with whoever on the on the other end. But it's kind of said already that they were nobodies. So kills them or he doesn't. 50-50. 50-50. Flip a coin each time. Who needs nuance? <laughs> <laughs> so chapter 26, again, from Lysander's perspective, Wrath of the Mother. Dido Ra, who I named previously, is the mom to a number of the characters that have been mentioned or talked about over the course of this series. She enters the scene in exemplar fashion, creating a power vacuum in the room quickly and easily. What do you think about her and the accompanying Bellafron? She is cold, calculated, and just fucking smooth. But ra- like, like the like the title of the chapter says, wrathful. She has some fire in her eyes and she's going to get some shit done. She's confident in wielding both her power and her knowledge of what the knowledge of the laws. So that makes for a really dangerous adversary to anybody who's not technically following the laws like her husband, the sovereign of the rim. Yeah, I, I think it's especially nasty when he starts to fling back the like, you're not even you're only a raw because we're married which is an interesting thing because it shows kind of the a conflict in their marriage. And she she is just kind of cold and ruthless, especially in the way that she speaks about her other children. This ties into kind of my, my point on the conflict in their marriage that clearly exists. We get mentions in the previous chapters of all of the loss this pair of parents has experienced over their life's tenure and like all of the other kids that they've lost. I think it's two or three. Some some at the triumph. Obviously, Romulus also lost his dad at the triumph. And there's just all of this sort of brutality where these these folks have been sort of killed in their family and they're considering and even here she almost kills them again and just talks down to them too. like the fucking lines. It's all politically calculated and just completely callous. Marius, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but you've always been a general offense to me. If ever a child deserved to be forgotten in the desert. But Diomedes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> but Diomedes, you disappoint me. Skulking about the night on ill errands is the duty of an assassin, one of your father's crypteria, not an Olympic night. And it, it just literally, like, your laughter plays into 100% of this. Like, it is, she is no bullshit, no crap, no garbage in it to do the right thing question mark the fact that nobody really bats an eye at this like (laughs) this barrage of insults between the family members makes it pretty clear to me that there's some poisonous words flung at each other like (laughs) within the within the walls of their home on a regular basis (laughs) yeah it it seems pretty uh pretty toxic right there (laughs) Yeah, or she's just trying to get to them, you know, and 
if if we consider their like upbringing and whatnot, they're yeah. they're trained well to resist this kind of shit. So it's fair. Combo. I I'm with you. I'm just also sick. They're like, oh man, they're, it's the rim culture, man. Rim culture is wild. Then my question to you is: Does Dido remind you of anyone? Like any anyone else come to mind? She kind of reminds me of Cassius's mother, Julia Albalona. Yeah, Julia Albalona. But a little bit more selective about what family members she'll actually fight for, as opposed to family over everything. But the wrath is still kind of there. She reminds me in particular in the way that she talks and addresses and kind of commands a room reminds me a little bit of Victra, like like Victra in 30 years. Okay. (laughs) That like Victra would sort of attack people and and think about these things and also throw around these egregious insults. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and talk about kind of the the emotional pain or things like that she feels like a like an elderly victra to me that's that's yeah. the read i get i could i could see that i could yeah. be behind that yeah it's just a curious fact you, know, you never you never know i don't know if so, she would, i don't know if victra would do that to her own children though i would agree i don't think that i think she's got more compassion i just see the sort of rage of victra being similar that being more of the okay. similar note yeah yeah so and as we we had kind of discussed before she tries to arrest the Sovereign of the Rim for conspiracy without precise evidence, but that's interrupted quickly. When Diomedes moves, they begin to die. Before that, during the conversation that they had, I thought it was really interesting that clearly both of them wanted the use of the word treason to be uttered, probably for two different reasons. And I'm thinking that it wasn't said because there wasn't evidence and that would kind of get the case thrown out potentially. If there, if it was a charge of treason and there was no evidence of it, I wonder if there's, I don't know, some loophole or law there. I, I, w- I would agree with you on wondering if there's some loophole or law for sure. I also would add to that that there is the potential that if the word like treason, if if she accused him of treason without evidence, he would probably just lock her up and throw her away, right? And like yeah. try to write it off as best as possible. That doesn't mean that the rest of it and like Bellafron and everyone else still wouldn't have like fought in this whole, you know, the rest of the scene wouldn't have happened. But I, I think that there's some attempt perhaps to downplay it on Romulus's part. However, at the same time, his moral backbone and his character also informed me that he might not make that decision. But it's I do tough. agree with you. They're dancing around the word treason. They're dancing. And I think Lysander calls it out specifically saying that they both that that the word treason was on both of their lips or something like that. Instead, she opts to arrest him with no actual stated charge, which you would think that'd be worse. <laughs> but apparently not. Yeah, I think I think some of that is because Serafina is not here to confirm the facts yet. And so because she's not there to confirm what she needs to know, I thought she was he there. has. I don't I don't think she was there until later. Okay. Because otherwise she would have asked right away. Because I think she specifically I can't remember the page, but I think Romulus says something like she's up in uh up in a room and that's why she doesn't come down until later. Gotcha. And so this entire thing is like basically had out, hashed out on like a dock, effectively. So she was already brought into that safe house that she'll be kept prisoner in for the rest of her life. Yeah, basically. But then the killing I mean, happens. Sorry, then, I cut, I I forgot to bring that up. This is so tough because I want to I want to talk more about like the Diomedes. Or I want to talk more about the kind of thing between Dido and Romulus, but also the violence. So let's do the violence and then we'll we'll bring it back around to the other components. Diomedes okay. fucking just destroys people. He slaughtered 
so many people so quickly. Yeah, yeah. He like I love I love the early description that we get of the Hosta being so much longer than the regular razors. And then the Katari getting pulled out where Lysander doesn't he knows what it is, but he didn't see it. And just kind of the the combination of these two different razors being wielded to just turn him into this whirlwind of death in the room. So is the Katari the standard razor? No, it's shorter than the standard razor. Okay. The Hosta, I think, is mentioned to be like two meters long. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. So the Katari is like a short, you know, if you think about, I think it's the samurai have the shorter sword. The Tanto. Yes. Very similar. Okay. That makes sense. In concept at the very least. That makes sense. I thought it was really cool to see the, uh, from Lysander's perspective, realizing that he's a really fucking good swordsman and then looking over and seeing a little bit of the soul in Cassius die through his eyes (laughs) when he realizes that he's not the most accomplished swordsman in the area anymore. Yeah, that that fucking Diomedes is absolutely I think it's something along the lines of they both have like the the glimmer of hope fade from their eyes as they come to the realization that perhaps Cassius isn't the greatest razor wielder. Yeah. Ugh. So oh, interesting thing to think about with that. Who taught him and how does that person compare to Lorne? Is that person still alive? Is that a threat to Darrow? Are there other students of this guy? How does that all kind of play in? That is a good thought. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm mm-hmm. guessing uh, we'll leave it at that. Well, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it It is a crazy duel, though, to especially considering Belafron and Diomedes hold it out against each other for a long while. Like it's a paragraph of them fighting and like just nicking each other. And I think that that's also impressive and should also freak Cassius the fuck out. I mean, there's there's just so much violence here. And is it Dido that finally calls it off? Yeah, Dino, Dido like shouts for them to stop. Dino. And then dino dino no dido shouts for them to stop and then at that point they do pause but he diomedes still fucking threatens his mom and (laughs) is like willing to cut her down in protection of his dad which is interesting and i think that this is actually a good point for us to talk about kind of the other components of sort of the decision making here because diomedes believes and trusts his dad implicitly partially because he's the sovereign and he's an olympic knight uh, and his mom kind of wields that against him in the form of the conversation about like you're an Olympic knight, your your duty is to the society, not to your sovereign, to the compact, which is interesting because that is the same argument that convinced Cassius basically to not <laughs> to, you know, go against Octavia. Yeah. So kind of a nice duality there, even within this room of representation of characters, talk about skill level, age, age points in their life, et cetera. It's um, it's good. It's interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, kind of just getting back to what I, what we were talking about quite a bit earlier, trying to circle back to there. We were chatting about kind of the complexity of the decision with Romulus and what he should do around Serafina and in turn with our boys, right? We kind of, you know, I wanted to complete the chapters so that we could talk about this a little bit more. Now that we're very near the end, it makes sense for us to have this part of the conversation and to kind of chat about the implications of what's to come. What I mean by that is... The consequence of what Romulus has decided to do to protect Serafina's life for crossing over the Paxilium line and his decision to hide her and the implications that that has now that Dido is aware 
and sort of the way that this could spiral out for both of them, because one chose to break the Paxilium to go get information that like recruiting her daughter to go get the information. And the other chose to hide it <laughs> to protect his daughter's life. Yeah. Shit's going down. Shit's going to get real unstable in the, in the rim. I mean, yes. obviously it's already gone down in the family, but if there's any sort of actual legal action taken from one to the other, or even extra legal, like outside of the courts or whatever, people are going to find out about it and it's all going to kind of topple. I think there's a, there's a whole lot of stability that is uh, on the brink of falling based on how this plays out. And, and I guess my question to you is, who do you think is on the morally right side, right? We know that Dido was looking for more information about the docks and that while Romulus may not have known the specifics about the docks, he may have known that something was up. Who's in the right and who's in the wrong here? It feels like a complete cop out, but both are kind of both. They're both circumventing the laws in order to gain on a personal level, not for monetary reasons or anything like that, but for familial reasons. What does what does Dido get out of it familially? Hmm. I think she's just a truth seeker. That's a good point. But she also I, I think I think I'm with that. Like she's definitely a truth seeker. But she thinks that something's being hidden from her. She thinks something's being hidden from her from her husband. I think she she thinks her husband knows. Yes. Do you think he actually knows the specifics or do you think that I he think just he has, has a, the vague implication? I think he has a good idea of it. I don't think he necessarily knows for sure, but I think he knows enough to kind of piece together what happened. The question comes when we bring this to a head in front of the societal judges, and we can kind of imagine the society being very close to the society that we knew from the original trilogy. How many times in a row can I say society? Society, society, <laughs> society, society, society. <laughs> what do you what do you think? Where do you think they land? Where do you think do they do you think that they side with Dido with the evidence that perhaps the the nukes weren't there perhaps that darrow was the one who destroyed the docks or do you think that they side with romulus and sort of his decision to keep it secret i guess to not do anything i think that's completely dependent on what seraphina found okay i think if it's tangible proof of anything that's different than the stated story of what happened then i think she wins everyone's on her side and they they wage war against the society or against the republic not that they really can. They don't have the, the ship numbers in order to do that. But they'll get riled up for it and maybe plot, I don't know, some sort of additional peace treaty thing as a ruse to get them to go there and have sort of a bloody reception. But if it's nothing tangible and it's all still circumstantial, I think Romulus wins and Dido and Serafina go away forever. Interesting. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I guess I just wanted to make sure that we kind of circled around. We completed sort of the thought on that topic. Where where do you think Diomedes actually stands on all of this? What do you think? What do you think he's feeling right now? I think his entire motivation is peace for his worlds, his moon, but also the entire rim and his family. He wants to maintain stability there. I don't think he really cares that he's hiding a secret that benefits Darrow because the the alternative is destruction of everything around him okay i dig it man this to me the the sort of conflict out here in the rim is a great example of pierce being able to reset the stakes and create a very political politically tense scene very quickly like this is insane how this blew up over two chapters basically yeah 
Jesus, what happened? How did we get here? This is all logical and makes sense. And especially taking into consideration, you know, I wasn't I, I'm not trying to I wasn't trying to create some kind of violent foreshadowing for this next book. But I it, the reason that the doc scanning me to are one of my favorite scenes is because of the way that it clearly has implications for anything rim related going forward. Like all they have to do is find out something and fucking their their war switch is turned on and good fucking luck. So getting back to the boys, though, we'll, we'll wrap up the chapter talking about our boys. I love how Lysander compares the two coups, the the first coup being a core style coup and the second coup being what's going on here between the Romuli. The Romuli? Is that actually how they're referred? <laughs> no, I'm just calling them that. Although I think it makes sense. Romuluses? It could be Romuluses. It's not that bad. I'm calling them Romuli. All right. Yep. I'll I'll get behind that. <laughs> I don't think there's a whole lot of actual parallels between them oh i don't i don't think that there are parallels i just think it's interesting that lysander is ingesting this information and comparing the two right because he's lived in one and now he's being exposed to the other even if they claim to be the society they're still not completely the society that he knows yeah and he has he has a pretty unique perspective he's literally in a front row seat for two different potential overthrows of different sovereigns which is fucking crazy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> lysander is at a front seat twice yeah is he gonna call the godfather this time hmm. hey those Rhea people are shooting each other again can you help me out orbital strike basically <laughs> yeah we need to, we need to do io can you do io real quick for me <laughs> ty send text <laughs> we need actually it. better yet send tweet we need you to become the double ash lord double ash lord double scoop double fun yep <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah agreed the the whole like coop perspective coup coop coup the coup perspective between the two of them i think is is i think it's even worse that you put perspective right after so it's (laughs) coup perspective (laughs) coup perspective that is pretty bad but it's it's just an interesting comparison too given sort of the political machinations and sort of the way that the rim looked down at the core in the last book as well and vice versa now we're being provided with a core perspective on rim life so it's interesting it is we get two pretty quick notes here Uh, you know one we've kind of already talked about but one seraphina did find what she was looking for and two that dido treats the pair as her guests what do you make of the two raws and their view on the boys as well as the revelation of some kind of evidence from seraphina clearly they know something big about actions towards the rim by darrow and sort of the the betrayal of the treaty that they had created the pact so they they know something is up there they know the story given that roke bombed the docks of ganymede is bullshit it seems kind of strange to say this after dido launched an attack against her her own husband and son but she and seraphina both seem a lot more compassionate if i can call it that Dido really understands when to use force and when not to and re- when to reward kindness with kindness alike. So I I think she's a really, really deep character and I'm excited to see where this goes going forward as as far as her interactions with our boys. Which it still feels <laughs> yes. weird to like refer to Cassius as our boy, but you know, here we are. I mean, he he is a hero. He definitely redeemed himself in the end. You know, regardless, he's... He's earned at least some form of respect. He absolutely has. I'm just saying it's after such a long time of him being the villain and him being 
not the villain, but a villain. A secondary antagonist, yeah. It's still a little strange to be in his good graces or other way around for him to be in our good graces. It is interesting to me. We know Romulus was ultimately responsible for dragging these two across the peace line and was the one who ultimately kind of broke it, regardless of how you look at this. I mean, it wasn't Romulus. Technically, it was Pandora, but they were the ones that violated the Paxilium. But Dido still really shouldn't let Cassius and Lysander live because they could still talk about coming from the core and having broken the, the treaty. Right. Like the same rules still apply. It's just Dido's treating them well right now because of Serafina, maybe. What do you what do you think about that? I think she sees them as an asset to collect information for her instead of sending her daughter out, kind of keeping mm. them in her debt as a means of gaining more information. OK, that's my guess. Well, that is where we leave our boys for the week. Our boys. Uh, you've, <laughs> the boys. I can't believe we're referring to them as that, but here we are. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts that you wanted to wrap up the section with? I just want to know more about the razor or the hosta. The hosta seems like such a cool fucking weapon. <laughs> it does have this like sort of ridiculous. I mean, just the, the idea of the size of that thing. It's just insane. It's like a razor lance mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You'd, you'd expect like some jousting with it or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chapter 27. We go back to Darrow's perspective for the first time in this part. And we're talking about Deep Grave. Yes. Finally. Oh, boy. These two chapters are so much fun. We have so much shit to talk about here. It's kind of nuts. I like Darrow's reflection right off the bat. It is liberating to be an outlaw once again. Octavio is right. Legitimacy and reign come with heavy burdens. It's just a great reflection on perhaps one of Darrow's best skills, which is breaking the rules and shifting the paradigm. This is cowboy Darrow, and this is truly (laughs) who he should be. It's so good to see him let loose like this. Like, he is a yeehaw motherfucker in these scenes. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he is definitely um back in the saddle <laughs> to go with your <laughs> metaphor and <laughs> none of this is in the script this is all improv and it's fantastic <laughs> it's it's just so great to see kind of the the return to form at the same time there's this kind of like lingering question that that lives here which Darrow kind of also ponders on for, you know, the first two or three pages of this chapter about sort of his place in the Republic and different things like that. And I wanted to point out one section and and pull it out and talk about it here. So they say Republics are naturally eager to devour their heroes. I always thought my Republic was the exception. And I think two things are interesting here in this line. One, yes, many have commented over the course of history and Darrow's first statement reads very accurate given the the context of history a lot of times the people who start the revolution aren't the ones who actually lead it lead it out of it because they tend to corrupt and then become maligned or or what have you the variously the institutions sort of consume them and don't allow for them to lead it there there are a couple of counterexamples of course there are always counterexamples but i i think for the most part it's a very interesting line coming from you know revolutionary's perspective the second He claims he seems to also claim ownership when he says my republic and feels responsibility for this republic as well. But it's that ownership that I specifically question. I know he feels that responsibility. Is that ownership perhaps why heroes are consumed by their republics? 
It's because they can't like drop their goals or their sense of belonging to a cause. It reminds me specifically of like the Odyssey and Iliad and Odysseus's perspective throughout both. Okay. Uh, that that was a whole lot, but I think I yeah, no. I think I got what you're saying. And overall, I like where you're coming from, but I don't think I see it. And I don't think he necessarily sees it as ownership, but rather that to which he belongs as far as sure. structures go. Like he it's it's his republic, much like this is my city that I live in, in that sort of respect. Sometimes when a mayor says it's my city, they're so self-absorbed that they actually think that it is their city. And I think that there's components of that to Darrow in some ways. Yeah. So almost like a mutual ownership kind of he owns it and it owns him in a way. Yes. Right. But uh, that makes total sense because this is what he conceived. It's what he fought for. He almost died for it a shit ton of times. And you you could probably say that he actually did die for it. He didn't physically die, but in that jackal's box, he he's not the same guy as what went into it. There's also the fact that the sovereign of this republic is Darrow's wife, which makes him really kind of intimately connected to the republic and how it's run and who runs it and just it as a whole. There There is a lot that points to him kind of owning the thing. Not entirely, but kind of. Yeah. And I think when you start to consider all of the variables going through this book, there's both a coldness to the structure of the Senate, a belief in its necessity, and then at the same time, a belief that they're making the wrong decisions. And so I unilaterally will make decisions. And between these two kind of beginning points here, he seems to get lodged in that. And I think that there's some component of what Dancer said that is correct, that Darrow is unwilling to give up power in in these contexts and believes himself not exactly a king, but believes himself with the ability to act unilaterally, believes that he deserves that. So and I, that's why I, I think he atta- I attached to the My Republic line so much. Okay, I can I can see that. I don't think he wants to be a king, and I don't think he wants to be a leader. I think he sees... Any sort of opposition to this republic as him not having completed his task yet. I think as long as there's something threatening the republic, he is going to feel responsible for taking care of that threat. Not so he can but lead it, it and not so he can own the the republic, but so everyone can be free and worry free. But isn't that also what Dancer pointed to? He, he was when he was talking to Darrow just privately at the time. He was he was basically alluding to the fact of, okay so what happens after you take the core? You're going for the rim next. Right. And Darrow doesn't necessarily answer. It's straight faced. He he basically says that, you know, we should consider eliminating all threats and kind of has that internal sort of monologue that, of course, that's where they're going to have to go next. Yeah. And like, I totally understand where you're coming from. But I think that we can also, at the very least, acknowledge Dancer's perspective and witness it within Darrow right now. I th- because Darrow is un- Sorry. Continue. No, no. It, I, all that I was going to say is that Darrow is unwittingly providing evidence of exactly what Dancer pointed out. I think absolutely that's correct. And I, I don't think it's necessarily for the reasons that Dancer's trying to point out. I think Dancer is right but Dancer isn't right for the right reasons. He he got the right answer with the wrong equation. 
Sure. I, I don't think Darrow is on a power hungry, like mad grab. I think Darrow just feels responsible for taking care of the threats that, that threaten the Republic. I think he, he feels a personal responsibility for it because I, I think he feels that it's almost like a child of his. And I, I guess that's maybe something to be talked about is what's more important, his actual child or the, the Republic that w- was born from his work. That's probably something that he's wrestling with, that Mustang is wrestling with, that there's going to be a lot of different opinions on. Without I, a doubt. And that's that's why I'm drilling into it so hard right here is I think that he spends so much time reflecting on it and talking about it and thinking about Wolfgar and sort of the sacrifices along the way that this this portion of this journey that we've witnessed over four books feels like that Odyssey moment where Odysseus questions whether or not he's even going to make it home. I think that's the difference, though. Odysseus is lost, and I think Darrow knows exactly where he is. I don't think he's lost in this war. I think he knows exactly where he is in the war and feels that the Republic is under threat, and potentially the Senate is a little bit lost from Darrow's perspective in being too complacent with the tentative peace with the rim and the, I don't know, almost stalemate with the Ash Lord. Uh, agreed. Uh, totally agreed on that front. That is for sure correct from from Darrow's perspective. The other portion of that, though, is the populace looking at Darrow. Him behaving unilaterally is something that like a, a dictator or a military dictatorship would do for, for certain. And that kind of... There's some inklings and implications there, especially when he doesn't inform, you know, anyone of potential peace, yeah. olive branches, trees, things like that. Olive tree branches, <laughs> olive tree branches, yeah, exactly. branch tree olives, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, so there's there's it's an a argument tough... to be made about the military dictatorship aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The difference with that is Darrow's not also making laws for the people. He's not running any other aspect. He's just kind of a rogue general, which (laughs) that's not necessarily something to idolize or be proud of or happy for at all. But it's not the same as a military dictator like they're making it out to be. Yeah, but what's to say that he doesn't one day see them as the threat, right? Here's here's the conclusion that I I think he does see them as the threat, which is correct. That's that's a tough part to that's a tough thing to swallow. The third threat is the Senate because they're not making progress quick enough and then he's going to take them out because then he can do better and he thinks that he can and he knows that he can and he always has been able to. And I think that's what the Senate, what Dancer preemptively fears to some degree. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he wouldn't do that so long as his wife's in charge. That's a completely valid fear. I completely understand it. It feels like they're reacting to that. I think the safe pin to push into this is we could talk about this for a long time because I think that that is a core philosophical argument that exists right now for darrow and Mm -hmm. there isn't an answer but it's important to talk about and to pose and to to think about so i'm sure we'll go back to it for the rest of the book at least (laughs) so the the next thing that i want to talk about is a little reference on page 241 there's this nice little reference at the beginning of one of the sentences in the middle of the paragraph men in yellow coats Well, PJ, you might not know this, but there's a Stephen King novella with a title about a psychic man and a child who might be exhibiting the shine, commonly known as Hearts in Atlantis. Uh, A movie also was made after this specific short story. 
Um, but the short the novella was called Go Fuck Yourself. That's not the reference. <laughs> These are just <laughs> crabbers. Is, They're wearing yellow jackets. <laughs> this is this is most certainly not a reference, but I like read it this time and I was like, that's kind of funny, especially given like amount of pick it apart we've been doing. No. Go go fuck yourself. Get this Stephen King shit out of here. It's actually not even that. It's called Low Men in Yellow Coats, but you know, not that any <laughs> Not okay. that anyone was going to correct me. You certainly didn't know. Uh, no, I pulled the wool not. right over your eyes. Oh, they're definitely yeah. just grabbers. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. Oh, fuck you and your Stephen King nonsense. Have you heard of Hearts in Atlantis, though? No, the movie? not at all. You haven't, you haven't heard of the movie? No. Nope. Wow, really? It's Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. and Anton Yelchin when he was a youngin. Hmm. Yeah, he was like. 14 something like that in that movie does he wear like a yellow jacket he does not he does not the low men in yellow coats are the it's a dark tower novel so we'll well novella so we'll eventually get to it because it's important so i'm not gonna spoil it but okay sounds yeah it's uh it's a good one the the movie's pretty good but not best it's a good anthony hopkins movie though cool okay with the <laughs> sounds we'll move, good we'll move on from that shitty little tangent uh <laughs> the <Hellers laughs> quickly sees the crab trawler under the guise of a venusian based crew here from the ash lord to steal people from deep grave i like the internal conversations that happen between the other howlers here after they do seize the ship and it starts to draw complete pictures of you know callaway min min thraxa alexander rona winky winkle winky winky winkle, blinky inky <laughs> and poe pebble clown ghost pac-man you could just like the list just goes on forever it seems there are so many fucking howlers so in this moment it's a it's awesome and it's also almost ridiculous but it's good that we get we're getting so much character from howlers now milia hasn't been mentioned in like 1500 pages and she's back that's true <laughs> she's back from book one <laughs> but I, th- yeah. I think one of the coolest parts about this is the acknowledgement to pebble as a core member it hasn't really happened up until now i don't think it's that way in darrow's eyes but just as readers it hasn't been the focus but she is as opposed to like just kind of being the feral child that she was in in the first book (laughs) she's a mature thoughtful tactful leader of these howlers as he refers to it the mother of the howlers Mm -hmm. Uh, which she is positively receptive to which was kind of cool yeah the like what what sort of feral children did we birth or what sort of feral offspring did we have or some something like that thinking about her and severo with like birthing the howlers this thing (laughs) yeah which is funny love that but they were they were just kind of the crazy people of the institute Mm -hmm. they were they were almost the laughing stock except for the fact that they fucking killed people the like extra appendage here that gets added on is we find out that pebble and clown got married after clown got very drunk at Severo's wedding and went and danced with her and like flirted with her which is great so that's also like kind of a neat payoff they've got a couple kids and they left them on the the moon both of them just like everyone else fucking everyone leaving their children to go off and do fucking wank off in the bushes basically but yeah but ocean, most of them left one parent with the kids that's <laughs> fair fair point <laughs> good good point pj <laughs> they totally abandoned their children <laughs> holy shit <laughs> i'm guessing auntie victor is looking after them 
yeah hopefully do you have any other thoughts on the other folks other handlers like i mentioned with milio i remember the name and i know she was referenced like used in book one i do not really remember who she is or what she did she wasn't a howler at that point right actually in this section it says specifically that she joined after the bombing of new thebes with a bunch of minor other minor houses so she probably got pulled into the howlers because of their connections when she was a oathbreaker uh, oathbreaker i was oathbreaker. gonna say outcast but that wasn't right i was trying to remember the o word not orgasm um uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a different it's not the word different o word different o word yeah yes as an oathbreaker so one of the yeah. slaves that rejected the scepter not scepter what's the what's the term for the little stick that they tapped on their foreheads to claim them it was a flag, standard wasn't it standard standard yep that's it yeah so milia milia is great We're, we get introduced to wrinkle for the first time of course we know wrinkle. a little bit about rona winkle is introduced right not, here not right wrinkle now. not not winky either <laughs> none none of those names winkle is the the green with the cool tattoos and the hair that looks alive which is interesting it defies gravity or something like that yeah defies gravity that's what it is and then rona of course we we've met rona before the niece of darrow and the smallest one and so she doesn't get to go along because she doesn't look like a gray she can't even be convinced she couldn't convince anyone that she's a gray of course, we have Thraxa and Alexander, who we get even more of here in these in these scenes and moments. Callaway, which is Warlock, and Minmin, who is a red munitions expert. It's it's a whole lot of people. We have so many more Howler names to not pay attention to going forward. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of Darrow's internal comments reflecting on the pain of the table or, you know, the jackal's cell or whatever you want to call it, the crate, the dark place? And of his former life as someone who used to be used to these small claustrophobic settings. I think most people would have kind of broken down at this point and they would have been a husk of a person. But he, despite acknowledging the uh, the feelings that he's got, he kind of holds it together pretty well through the mm -hmm. trauma, which I don't know, says a lot about his uh internal constitution but the fact that he acknowledges it and acknowledges that like this is reminiscent of his time in the box is i think a good step for him and i think okay. it'd be even better if he were to do that out loud but i don't think that's happening anytime soon it's interesting and it's it's well written because he actually comes off as anxious and for a protagonist to come off as anxious and kind of acknowledging that is a, a really good thing and characterizes him really well, I think, especially when he thinks about the boat, the submarine that they're about to get on as this like metal coffin. And that comment sits with him as he thinks about it and feels very real to him. Mm -hmm. I think there's also some irony between, you know, the the table, the metal coffin and the fact that he was a red used to crawling around in small caves. And there's something something there that he was born there and felt the most comfortable. And now that's something that he's kind of afraid of. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. The fucking claw drill. What would it, what, how do you think he would react to being in a claw drill right now? Underground. I think he'd feel very different, but obviously when he was going through one on space, it was okay. But. Oh, he was, was it? We already experienced yeah, that. Yeah, but that's, that's not as claustrophobic. I mean, he was basically just in a spaceship, you know, it was an outfitted quadrille, but he wasn't going, he wasn't digging into the ground and unable to, you know, see. Yeah, that's fair. 
I don't know. There's that component. Mm-hmm. I I mean, just thinking about the the caves in general and the mines that they they lived in, it, there is a good there's a good sense of irony there, and not in the the Alanis Morissette way. Fair, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what do you make of the description of deep grave? This deep ocean walking crab prison with the fucking really small cells as well as our squad that is committing their b and e it's not guantanamo bay womp 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 but it is way fucking cooler i want to know that there's a giant robotic crab in the atlantic ocean right now (laughs) like i want that to be a thing right now (laughs) that's what's the the government is hiding from us in the unexplored part of the ocean is a giant robotic leviathan I think we also have to make mention of the fact that they got here by terrifying crabbers and now they're going True. to a giant crab. Yeah. So yeah. theme of the book is now crabs. <laughs> no, it's still cooking. We haven't we just haven't cooked the crab yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we got to cook the crab. <laughs> crab is an ingredient in crab stew, PJ. Come on, get with it. <laughs> what are you thinking? What am I thinking? But this facility is obviously huge and imposing and inescapable, essentially. One thing I wasn't super clear on, was this constructed by Mustang or was it reappropriated? Because I I felt like there was comments about her creating this for the traitors that were set to be executed before she outlawed capital punishment. But there's also like metalworking that when the construction that they comment on, that's like ancient because of how how thick the doors are and shit like that like they call it out as ancient technology is is there any comment that i missed somewhere that says when it was actually built yeah so specifically for 400 years deep grave prison has crawled the abyssal plains of earth's oceans sucking up the sins of old earth and punishing the sinners of the society murderers rapists terrorists political prisoners and now war criminals that makes sense it it was used previously. It is basically repurposed, but they do specify that this is where everyone went. And given the context of what we know from Ephraim, we know that no one was killed, uh, that the only the last person that was killed was the jackal before the law was passed. And they're all here now. Yeah, I guess. Actually, it, I think that might have even been shared from Darrow's perspective. The fact that they can get under the thing tells me it's like a normal crab. And if it was Mustang, it probably would have been a horseshoe crab. The fuck. <laughs> i mean that yes they do have to ultimately get under the thing you know in order to get the submarine in but also i find it interesting that there's a nice little like world building component here that it is also cleaning the ocean and that that is an important component that it has here also that almost everyone on the ship that is a prisoner is supposed to be sucking on a tube of algae i'm not sure if that's an innuendo or if no, it's, it sounded like that was actually like the actual process yeah. Like it was I a, think so. Like a like a hamster getting fed mm-hmm. water. It seemed like there was a small tube that came down and had like an algae supplement thing. Apollonius, of course, uses it later as an innuendo. But oh, yes. yeah, but yeah, it can be both. At, at that moment, too, now that I've just mentioned it, it kind of felt like the poor choice of words moment with the Joker. Like it, you know, it kind of felt similar yeah. to me. You think about it, it's like poor choice of words <laughs> drops him. Cool. Any other thoughts on like the breaking and entering? Because there's a lot that happens here 
in terms of them breaking in and kind of the the way in which they Ocean's Eleven the shit out of this place. Yeah. It's really cool. I just don't know if there's anything crazy it's, to talk about. It's so well contained within the book itself that it's hard to really break it down beyond that. You know, the one thing that actually caught my eye this time that I didn't put in the notes was the the ghost cloaks are very well described in sort of the way that when when people look at them, what it impacts and when you look out of them, what it looks like. The description of it kind of looking like a crayon scribbled in front of, you know, like it's scribbled over vision, like crayon outlines of, of folks reminded me of like the Harry Potter invisibility cloak from the movies and the way that everything kind of had that blur blur look and feel to it except for even a little bit more difficult to see through and and visual it felt a little bit more like a a translucent thing rather than straight up invisibility especially when they call out the the guards yeah translucent versus transparent oh yeah i'm okay so real quick i'm yes trans translucent but from the inside looking out the way i understood the the scene with the guards around the table and they like call at them and then the guard looks it made it seem like they could see them if they knew to look for someone yeah like it was headache inducing if you stared at it for too long because it looked distorted enough that you could tell that something was wrong yeah definitely like like the the cloak the invisibility shield thing in halo where if you're really looking you can kind of see the ripples yeah same sort of way. But if you are if you are cloaked invisibly, you cannot see the world clearly was what I was trying to. Point oh, OK, out. Gotcha. Like if you are if you are within the cloak, what you see is like a crayon chalk outline of people <laughs> as gotcha. opposed to what they actually are. Gotcha, um, gotcha, but gotcha. yes. Yeah. As exactly from from the guards perspective, I also imagined the sort of halo cloaking. It, it gave me that visual representation as well. Yeah. Which yeah. makes sense that it'd be really fucking difficult to see a glo- ghost cloak outside in the snow, like in Institute, the first book the at back. the Institute. Yep. They weren't able to see him at all, but in a small confined space and they're standing in a doorway in a static, cold hallway, it's probably easy to see small imperfections there. Mm-hmm. The the other part to like just throw in here again, and I I think i wrote this in lyria's section is it becomes especially evident as we go through this book that it actually has also colored my impression of the first the original series so well because in post it describes a lot of these small details so well and the way that they function the way that they work that the very like loose description that we got in the original trilogy feels great because i know what it's referencing it just took yeah books to get there it fills it out i don't know if that fixes the first book and some of its shortcomings and descriptions and stuff like that. But it oh, certainly not, helps it makes me the now world feel larger. Right, right. And and when you when and if you pass through the books again for whatever reason, I feel like given the knowledge that's provided in these books, a lot of those things that felt kind of loosey goosey in the first trilogy feel a lot more clear cut as Iron Gold quickly goes through and basically explains everything that might have been missing detail in incredible detail speaking on that front i think before we start dark age i'm going to just binge the audiobooks of all the first four books that's my intention good luck (laughs) good good stuff i mean Um, i'll do it like while i'm working i'm not gonna pay super super intense attention like i do during these because right, I have right. to like I kind of want to experience it as just a binge session like Tim is right now. Dude, he's going to fucking finish Golden Sun tonight. He he talked to me. And he's like, yeah, I should get done at like one in the morning. And I'm like, 
dude, if you finish Golden Sun at one in the morning, you're going to start Morningstar immediately because you're going to be so fucking stressed. <laughs> like you are not going to that book does not end in a good place. Crossland, uh, this is a very hard subject for me to talk about all the time. <laughs> and you're the cause of it. So I'm going to abstain from this conversation. That's fair. So back on <laughs> back on the subject matter, the final thing to talk about for this chapter is the obsidian that is in the cell that Apollonius is supposed to be in. That cell being cell number O. 2983 even though he is prisoner 1126 the different prisoner numbers and cell numbers to be honest threw me off like why wouldn't you just keep them the same i would guess that the cell numbers are sequential based on level and position and the prisoner numbers were sequential based on intake date like hotel Mm -hmm. numbers versus i don't know customer id number yeah i guess just like in a prison system why wouldn't you keep those numbers the same well it just feels in prisons today you're gonna have a, a prisoner id number and they're gonna be in cell 24d or something like that i guess i guess there might be cases in which you've multiple people in the same cell but for the most part it feels like this is solitary confinement although we're also only presented really with the solitary confinement case so that's yeah. probably why that that makes sense i'm sure they get moved from general population to solitary confinement based on behavior like they do in prisons nowadays yeah. so they can't change around the room numbers or the prisoner id numbers based on where they current re- currently reside so true true and th- if they need I, to shuffle people around easier it makes more sense to have the independent numbers too yeah. if it, a pipe breaks for instance yeah exactly you know it was confusing a little bit just because it's too numbers that were presented with but i felt like the reason for it made sense Eleven twenty-six is occasionally thanksgiving sometimes sure sometimes yeah is i that, don't know is that why it was eleven twenty-six? i i have no clue pj but okay. i'm letting you know what about the that, other that, one was that a sci-fi reference of any sort uh, not that i'm aware of okay. not that i'm aware of did i take note of it for trivia in like two weeks yes absolutely i did <laughs> Am I creating notes while reading through this book and rereading oh. the first three right now? Absolutely, I am during my work days, like you said a moment ago. That's a good point. <laughs> Has that been announced yet, or will it be by the time this comes out? I believe it has already been announced to the Discord, okay, folks. Do you want to go ahead and uh, announce know. it to our listeners here? I guess we'll just throw this out in the middle of the episode. Uh, I am going to be partaking, uh, we are partaking in a number of shows this month on. June 10th, I am partaking in a trivia event with the Hail Reaper folks over at their Discord as a part of their Patreon bonus. It will be Hallerpod and I against a team that is built of their internal group of patrons and Discordians that are going to be going up against us. It should be a lot of fun. I will get to talk with Banner Aaron again and we'll get to kind of bullshit, hopefully do our best. I'm really leaning on them for Dark Age knowledge, considering I'm currently in my second read through. Which maybe means that it'll be fresh, but, the but fact I've got a lot of this random shit like these numbers down. So the fact I'm, that Dark Age is included means I will not be joining. So correct, correct. So because it it will include both Iron Gold and Dark Age, PJ cannot partake. So it'll just be me plus Hallerpod. Should be a good time. And then the next show will be with High Key Obsessed. That'll be fun. I don't think that he's announced it, so I'm not going to fully announce what we're doing. But it'll be a good time. The only thing I'd say is to think about your favorite action heroes. That's that's it. That's what I'd say. (laughs) And then the third... Fuck, how many of these do we have? I've got at least... There's like... 
I think there's two more, but I don't want to announce one of them yet. You can actually you can actually read one of our announcements for one of the episodes on our website. All you have to do is go to wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash schedule, and you can look at the end of Iron Gold and see who our guest is. I'm not going to announce it until probably the week prior, but if you want to know, you can go look. Yes, Come on. you can. All you have to do is go to the website, and you can check it out. And then you can also keep track better than how we just say on the show here if you bookmark that page. The the third guest spot is going to be on a uh, Stephen King podcast talking about the Dark Tower comic books. So my part of that or is that just you? You're definitely not a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know shit, about shit. The Dark Tower. I got to read. I got to read the Dark Tower and then the comic books. <laughs> That's only several thousand pages. And yeah, I'm not doing books. that shit. You could actually probably read the comic books beforehand because they don't spoil anything. Yeah, I have a feeling so. you're going to talk about how the comic books relate to the story itself, though. So that will probably happen as long as that's not provided as a rule. So those are the those are the couple of things that we're showing up on. June is going to be crazy busy as we also have another big announcement in June. Which we're we'll do about. later. Let's keep going with the story. Yep. Here we are. Chapter 28. Cylindero's perspective prisoner you know one of the things that we actually didn't talk about too much in the last chapter uh was tongueless what did you think about our first introduction to the towering obsidian the biggest thing about him in that chapter was when pebble was like constantly kind of trying to get darrow's attention i really thought the obsidian like a scooby-doo tv show where like people are just in a conversation there's a monster like coming towards one of them gonna attack and like somebody's trying to get the attention with no avail that's what i felt like like darrow was gonna get fucking struck down by this obsidian but i was pleasantly relieved when uh she was not warning of something more sinister (laughs) so but he uh i guess it it comes out sort of later on but he kind of seems like a stand-in for ragnar who was a stand-in for pax so you know pax lives on in the uh giant wacky kind of position <laughs> i know he's more than that and i know yeah ragnar was more than that i know pax was more than that but if you want to boil it down that's kind of what they were yeah i mean i i totally agree with you on the scooby-doo villain point i feel like it does have that kind of sort of comical tone to it like dude are you, are you gonna are you gonna look like get, get, i need boss. attention please boss <laughs> boss boss something's here yeah yeah definitely got the same sort of thing uh, and definitely had that same sort of terror and it, it was you know it's it's interesting I, it, we can we can talk about this more when we get to that point but in getting into sort of chapter 8 28 now that we finished that little that little bit that we skipped uh Dura reflects early on in this chapter about something we discussed a little bit last week in passing i muse how it would be easier to kill them but then shudder afterward at my own reptilian coldness these are my people and I think that answers at least part of our question that we posed last week about why doesn't he just kill everyone? He doesn't really intend to kill anyone, but he is just kind of a machine of death and rage. And that is sort of the like coldest, easiest answer for him to jump on. You know, I mean, he kind of sticks to that point now. He didn't act like nobody died in this chapter, right? <laughs> technically, uh, technically, yeah. no one died. No, one I don't died. know if I can Someone say no dies. bloodshed, but technically no one dies. that's that's a that's a fair enough point i'll 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 accept that i guess the the thing is is that like when we when we apply that retroactively darrow only killed because he had to wolfgar 
was far outstripping him in terms of armaments, armor, and sort of positioning in that moment. And so, you know, mm-hmm. he, he did what he had to, which is the unfortunate clicking of his teeth against the razor blade. Well, well, just, just he had that coming. Just, <laughs> just, just need to bring that up. What do you make of the warden of the jail, Videli Ku Yankra? What a fucking mess of a name, by the way. What a fucking mess of a person. (laughs) True. (laughs) Uh, Where do you think he sits on the loyalty to the Republic meter or spectrum? Like, where does he exist? Uh, I don't think he's on any sort of spectrum as far as uh, like regards for any sort of authority. I think he is loyal to coin and to himself and doesn't really hold any allegiance to anything else. And it suits him. And it suited him so far. He's gotten this far in life. He has a pretty cushy job, pretty sweet position where he can take bribes from prisoners to put them in. What would you call it? Like a, a almost a brothel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a penthouse at the very least. Like he's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, he doesn't have allegiances to the to the Republic, but I don't also don't think he has allegiances to the Ash Lord or to the Rim or to any other authority or even like the old society i think okay. he just he wants to get paid that's it and it and it for the money that makes sense what do you make of alexander and severo's bit over the carpet you know when they're talking about the carpet inside of the room that he that he's got not the carpet the rug that he's got inside of the room you can tell <laughs> that the humor apple has fell very close to the tree within the howlers it seems yeah i mean who's not gonna laugh at realizing this is a really expensive rug and then pouring coffee on it and pointing out that the dog pissed all over it when when the door was open like ruin that fucking rug seriously (laughs) that was ill-gotten dollars that paid for that rug so stain it i don't give a shit Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. funny though it it's it's well done and it's it's an interesting point with alexander i think to to think about especially because he is in arcos you know yeah so as far as the humor apple falling not far from the tree in in respect to Severo. I think what's going to be really interesting with Alexander is looking at how he relates to his grandfather, Lauren, mm-hmm. and whether or not he was old enough to gain that influence from his grandfather or if he was mostly influenced by Darrow. And the fact that Darrow was so heavily influenced by Lauren, like what are the differences between those two sort of thought processes? Where where is that line drawn? I'm excited. I'm excited for Alexander Al Arcos or Triple A, as I like to call him. <laughs> to see where he Triple goes. Triple A battery. <laughs> Triple A battering ram. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm excited to see how he develops as a character because of that aspect sure sure he's got a little bit of a sensitive stomach you know i thought that was interesting you know i mean he is youngish he's you know 2021 a little bit older perhaps than lysander or very close in age but you know interesting interesting kind of thing to to see i agree with you though reflecting those subtle differences and wondering you know kind of in postulating on the idea of what's different between darrow and lorne is a big deal for sure I think it's something that we'll we we will for sure explore regardless of whether or not the books do oh i guess i didn't doubt it at all <laughs> i was gonna say like regardless of whether the book says anything we can think about the way that darrow's reacting to something versus the way lauren would have so mm-hmm. yeah for sure and then there's 
Apollonius. I'm going to say that again. And then there's a Apollonius Alvali Wrath, the last of the Wrath brothers. He's described as a twisted simulacrum of Tactus. It's really interesting when we approach him, of course. He's got this sort of like harem of pinks about him. I think it's just two, right? I think it's yeah, just it's two pinks. Um, but it's kind of presented like just the pillows on the floor and kind of that whole scene. And he's playing the violin. And I mean, what do you make of this fucking absolute madman? He is Jesus fucking Christ. Is he a monster? <laughs> it gave off such crazy villain vibes being like delicately playing a violin and going to basically barehanded, just popping some dude's eyeballs. Like, <laughs> dude, I'm so excited for this character. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, we, we talked about the, the Minotaur. And my description of him just having a really fucking big cock. And I'm right. That's absolutely it. <laughs> that's that's the trait that we picked up about the Minotaur. <laughs> I know that I totally laughed in that moment because I remembered kind of the harem and the pillows and things like that. And I was I just like it was one of those moments where I got to just sit there and chuckle to myself being like, oh, yeah, totally. Yep. They're okay. passed out just face down seemingly by narcotics. I'm sure it's just the dick. <laughs> Uh, the dude is just <laughs> vile and the way that he talks is so it's strangely elegant and poetic yep it's yeah. just there's he's like the jackal ratcheted up like 10 15 20 times mm-hmm. in terms of just like the way that he talks at the very least the jackal has this sort of like mischievous sense. There's nothing, there's almost like nothing hidden with Apollonius. He just like is very in tune. He's obviously Tactus's brother, but is it his half brother? Because it was just Tactus Alrath. Correct. Tactus is the half brother of both Tharsis and of Apollonius. Another thing that we we kind of have an interesting component, there are a number of Apolloniuses in history. It, you know, it's a relatively I don't want to say common name. It's a super uh, common among, name. I, I know like four of them. <laughs> super common name among Greeks and 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 the like and, and Romans and whatnot. So it's it's worth commenting on. Different note. Is it all right if I just call him Apple for the rest of the story? I'm sure you've maybe <laughs> if yes, you can definitely call him Apple. I'll probably go back and forth between Apple and Apollonius. Okay. But that was this is Aaron's favorite character. Okay, as gotcha. I'm, I don't know if you caught that. Well, it's the Minotaur or part. If you right? remember that, what? It's the Minotaur part. What do you mean? The cock. Oh my god! <laughs> you are so fired. You are so fired. She's going to murder you, Tim Apple. That's his name now, Tim Apple. No, it's not Tim Apple. But yeah, it is. It is actually a very common abbreviation within the <laughs> fandom. So I will probably jump back and forth and use it as necessary, especially within quotes. I'm not going to call him Apple. But yeah, I I definitely agree with you. And just to paint that little it's I mean, it's a, it's a nugget of perspective like to like to stick within the team. No hype thing. But this was the favorite character. I knew it was her favorite character. So I asked for her to not talk about it. <laughs> um <laughs> I was like, don't don't say Apple. Whatever you do, don't say Apple. And I think Wait, so people people actually do call him Apple. Yes. Yeah. All right. I thought I was being original. Now I mm, <laughs> I need to figure something else out. <laughs> they do. They do call him Apple. Maybe I'll just call him Lonious then. <laughs> that's that's worse. You could call him Loon. 
I don't know. No, that's not. Mm, no, <laughs> not even not even close. OK, so with with that, move into the next little bit here. Apollonia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jesus, you fucked me up. Apollonius <laughs> looks over at me with the bored insolence of a dog taking a shit on a carpet and then proceeds to squeeze the eyeballs out of the copper's head until they pop in a meaty squelch. And oh, my God. Even unarmed, this dude is a madman and a vicious opponent and fucking shit, dude. I mean, what? there is one thing going for him in this situation. Didn't kill him. Like That's all that really matters, right? I don't I, I honestly don't feel that bad about it. I really didn't like the copper. I mean, I, it's so it's almost not so much the the thing with the copper the the violence against the copper was almost a show of defiance against darrow and kind of what was going on especially since he then turns that into violence against them you know i didn't get that at all i got it as a fulfillment of a promise made to the man also true i do also agree with that yeah Like, I have to fulfill this promise. I won't kill him because you lied to me and told me that killing him will lock the place down. But I'll just, I don't know, make him unconscious and squeeze out his eyeballs. Yeah, no no one said I can brutalize him, so he brutalizes him for sure. And, you know, that that makes sense. I think it's the kind of ensuing violence that that gives me the perspective on him that he was kind of using this as a moment to, to figure it out and just sort of extricate both revenge and take opportunity in sort of the shock factor because it does like the shock disarms alexander to the point of where he's vomiting in his fucking helmet and just kind of having a tough time in this moment the the other part that i would say is earlier he obviously mentions the smell of the sweat smelling something like copper he thinks and then here when he makes him bleed he's smelling the blood of his eyes and says yep that's copper (laughs) coins 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 yeah yeah that's coins and it's just fucked but fantastic yep pretty pretty brutal Mm -hmm. super cool Mm -hmm. though so before they make it out of the room our obsidian pal knocks out apollonius with a hookah and then receives the nickname tongueless and joins the howlers on their next adventure i'm excited to have another obsidian on the crew but (laughs) as as i said before viva regnar (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of how this feels it it kind of does he does have kind of a similar feel and it does feel like there's maybe maybe there's something there i don't know mm-hmm. what do you think obviously going to be a little bit different he's only like six foot eight or something like that and scrawnier mm-hmm. so he's not he's not crazy tall he's not super jacked he's not but he's clearly intelligent so it'll be it'll be cool to have him as an asset yeah Makes sense. I think we'll see a different a different layer of strengths from the obsidians through him. I think honestly, we're getting a different layer of strengths through both of the obsidian characters that we really well. We had three. Now we have two. Well, we had two. Then we had one. Now we have two again. (laughs) Between Volga, Wolfgar, and now Tongueless, we we get different perspectives on obsidians and their places and culture, Mm -hmm. and sort of also the varying intelligence levels and what they they've adopted. Or and the evolution of Sefi as well. Oh yeah, true, true. Totally skip Sefi. I was just thinking about new perspectives. Well, but yeah, that, that's, a, that's why I said evolution. Yeah, she's not the same, but she is the same character technically. Yes, yes, definitely not the same person, but the same character. Totally, I agree with that. So, with that, we end our week with the Reaper and the Howlers. Do you have any other comments here to bring up about what we talked about? Oh no, I'm just. 
I'm excited to see see the fallout of the Minotaur waking up after getting knocked out by a hookah. Yeah, yeah. The the fact that he rips off Darrow's mask and then reveals it while laughing while being drugged is just yeah. there's it's it sticks. This it just man sticks. took how many poison darts to the to the face and hands? He, At least four. He took. He two didn't go and down from the hookah too. either. Like he went down, but he wasn't unconscious. He wasn't unconscious until Severo kicked him in the temple like a soccer kick. Yeah, this dude's huge too. That's the other part of this to consider. Like he is massive and has actually put on weight in prison, yeah, which was not expected. <laughs> which was not expected because he was supposed to be in solitary without any ability to do anything. So right, everything, everything about this chapter with Apollonius is fucking incredible. So chapter oh, 29, yeah. Lyria, Rust and Shadow. And this chapter starts off as though Lyria is continuing her streak of good times with a trip to Hyperion to put in her diary. She's like just adding to this happy catalog of uh, of a new life. Yeah, I have a, I have a strange feeling that most of these passages with Lyria are going to read like diary entries. I've kind of had that twice in a row. And it makes sense for the... The progression of the character, at least for a while, to kind of read like that. I, I guess like part of part of Lyria's perspective for me is that she is a great perspective to gain another. You know, you've got like Ephraim, who's in the seedy part of On the Ground, and then you've Lyria, who's on the sort of disenfranchised, low level citizen part of society and so you get you get this kind of view and while viewing these as diary entries is kind of my my joking way of referring to them i think it's also fairly accurate and it i don't i i like it actually i think that it's a it is a nice way to break some of the tension that we get in other sections yeah i i think i completely agree with you i like the way that it's set up and i like the way it's presented it is the red case of what I was kind of hoping for, for the golds. So I wanted a an average Joe gold perspective. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think I talked about it basically since at least book two. I don't know about book one. I don't think I mentioned it in book one, but I'm pretty sure since book two, I've been talking about wanting like a non-peerless perspective of the golds. And technically we get that with Lysander, but I think he would have been peerless if that system still existed. I think he would have been Julian if that system would have existed, but sure. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't He'd know. either be peerless or he wouldn't exist. Correct. He'd, he'd either be dead or peerless. But we get that sort of structure out of Lyria with the Reds. She is yes. the everyday average Red living in the refugee camps and kind of being treated like shit the entire time. So it's cool to have that really refreshingly real aspect because she is, yes, she gets like taken up by one of the most prominent figures in the universe at this point, the Cavax and the Salamonises. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she is truly just a red. Yeah. And everyone yeah. else is in some extraordinary circumstance. I like seeing how she progresses. Uh, yeah, I also, you saying Cavax and the Telemontises sounds like a fucking band name for the record. It should be. I think Cavax would. What would Which, Cavax play? Probably the an flute. upright bass. Okay. I either a flute or an upright bass. I feel like those are the <laughs> those are his two moods. It's either totally like smooth jazz, or he's playing the weird fucking instrument that makes no fucking sense. Oh, maybe so. a saxophone. Ooh, he could he could be a sexy sax player. A little little Kenny G solo in there. Yep. Mm. 
Mm, Andrew. Pax was a drummer. Get us there. Let's be real about that. Pax, Pax was a drummer. <laughs> so is Tongless. So is Ragnar. <laughs> All drummers. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I totally agree with you, though, on Lyria's perspective. She's got a weird dichotomy going on because she's the privilege of being held within the house Telemannus. But then also she's obviously got she's that privilege is directly tied to that societal tie that she has to the family. So she outside of the the premises of the house is still considered a, a decent classed citizen, but not that great. You know, like she's not she's allowed to do things, <laughs> but clearly there are people who are not allowed to be here, which is also in and of itself kind of a a larger question for what's going on in society that some people are restricted from visiting other worlds, other planets like that seems wrong ish. It does there just to speak to kind of that that complex situation that we're talking about there is actually just so much detail in these pages that i can't stop and like point out each little thing but the train that she takes in the different colors and their personas on the streets the contacts and the comlink implants all of these different sci-fi elements are so cool and really help flesh out what we think an average citizen's day might be do you have any favorite moments or do you have you know anything that called to you I have a favorite moment and it isn't really tied to the sci-fi elements of it or the futuristic elements of it. It's something so real and something I actually definitely experienced myself in almost exactly the same way. And I would guess you did too, which is when she's looking at the trains, mm. like the, uh, mm-hmm. the schedule and trying to figure out where she needs to go and what ticket she needs to buy. And she realizes that there's somebody like impatiently waiting behind her and she can't she doesn't know what she's doing and she doesn't want to take the time to like ask and figure it out because there are people waiting and she just fucking leaves and walks the five kilometers. Welcome to New York, baby. <laughs> like that, is, that is exactly my experience. Is, like that is exactly my first experience with the subways of New York. That is that is exactly. I mean, it's it's so interesting because I have I lived for, for those who don't know. I lived in New York for a year when we started the show. I was living in New York and pandemic hit and was going on actively. And so I moved to North Carolina where there's a little bit more space near my parents. But before that, I totally have had this exact experience it's so cool to hear that you have too but especially the like mind the pinch isn't exactly the language of the new york subway system it sounds like a, a britishized version like it might be the the tubes yeah mind quote. the gap i think yeah, is mind the, the gap right it's the british one and this is uh, it's a different situation and who knows if it's uh i'm assuming it's like either grav lift or just straight up not on the ground transportation so maybe that makes more sense not being on a train station, not yeah. being on a railway, that there's not quite a gap, but there's the pinch of the For, door shutting. The The reason I say the the pinch makes me think of New York, but maybe Britishized a little bit is in New York, it's stand clear of the closing doors, stand clear of the closing doors. And it's just it, it reminds me of that sort of mentality, but given sort of the Brit tones of politeness on top. It makes sense. But yeah, I totally agree. That is one of those details that especially this time, the first time that I read this book, I was not living in New York and then moved to New York, did a number of things, read Dark Age when I was there. Yeah. And Iron just Gold. didn't quite have it. I didn't know. I, I, I read Iron Gold before I went to oh, New York. Gotcha. Okay. And then I read Dark Age when I was in New York. 
but I didn't have an appreciation really for that line yet because I hadn't lived there. I'd been there and visited a couple of times, but I didn't have like that just gets ingrained. It's just normal. It's natural. And that sort of like strange pressure that you get at a <laughs> at a metro card station where you're, you're sitting there waiting for your fucking metro card and there are people behind you and your fucking credit chip, cre- your credit card chip isn't reading for whatever reason on the on the station like that stress it ha- was enough to make me walk in the same way that Lyria does here. And there are there's some sort of meta comments that come around with Lyria where people don't find her relatable and things like that. I think she's a very specific kind of relatable and you got to you got to kind of dig in. You got to you got to appreciate kind of the the piecemeal little moments to kind of pull her together to make this yeah. kind of seamless understanding of what's going on in society to, you know, exactly. You know what I, mean? I, I didn't really have a whole lot of understanding or kinship with her until that moment. But Interesting. once I read that, I'm like, OK, I completely understand what this character is and where she's coming from and why she was written like this i i completely understand this sort of outsider looking in stranger in a strange land kind of kind of thing man you say stranger in a strange land and i think that's also so accurate she feels so interesting because she is so removed from her culture and having now moved to a couple of different cities and lived there mostly on my own or on my own entirely without you know a ton of friends around or anything like that shout out to kyle though the back in back in new york Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> we, you know, being so removed from your regular environment, you do feel like these slow, quiet moments like this. Like the the detail of her going into the cafe and enjoying that pastry is something that I think only happens when you force yourself to be really uncomfortable and try new things. And I think that's another reason that I love this perspective in this chapter so much is between that and kind of going to the museum. It does have this kind of exploratory feel to it i'm glad you get kind of the same thing yeah i do i will say what i focused on in that cafe where she gets that pastry is the coffee and the fact that it's uh it's a quarter of her daily pay Mm -hmm. which is i don't know that either means the telemonuses pay like shit or that i think it's i think it's tourist prices (laughs) all right yeah (laughs) i think it's just tourist prices which was, was it, noted in Ephraim's chapter, right? Like the bulge receiving area. I think he called it yeah. the bulge. There are all of these different moments in the beginning of the chapter when it feels like it's kind of that diary reflection on different things where she's like, I'm having such a good time doing this or trying this, even though it pays this. And I'm stressed out about like the subway and the the weight. It feels like Pierce Brown, as he's thinking about this character, is just creating an empathy bomb as he's reaching outwards to all of these different perspectives, trying to pull you in to listen to Lyria's perspective to think from her mind and to create an empathetic connection yeah or a pathological connection either way and i think he does it well i think it's it's hard not to have if you've ever been to a museum anywhere anywhere that's not your home any city that's not your home i feel like you've probably felt similar to what Lyria is experiencing it's a pretty universally relatable feeling that she that she has throughout in this entire chapter, or at least the the entire first half of this chapter. And and for me, this is I, I said this a bit ago, but this is when it really like Lyria's perspective really opens up for me where mm-hmm. she feels like she was a good character before. She was very much a, a victim of circumstance for the most part. And now she is this she's a point of exploration into the rest of the world that we can kind of like get in and sit in and enjoy kind of the roller coaster ride regardless of where it goes. 
I was not on board with Lyria's perspective until this chapter. <laughs> yeah, and and I get that. Like she she mostly was providing the perspective of like, oh yeah, shit's bad, <laughs> and and uh, it makes it it makes it kind of hard to relate from our perspective at the very least. But there are definitely elements in the world that would would agree and understand and relate with the early Lyria perspective. But this is the moment in which. Pierce tries to tie it into anyone else who can't feel or see that pathos within the character and tries to tie that all together. So I, mm-hmm. I love her imagined interview too at the end of the the coffee shop experience. I think it has its own merit as a moment when she's reflecting on money, her comment about school and skills and the like keeping her from living a life that she sees others living around her is just another example of the economic divide that we've seen repeated time and time again from each of other other characters as they notice their position in society we've seen Ephraim talk about it we've seen Darrow talk about how nothing's really changed or that people mostly react the same way that they do and I think that's interesting I think it goes beyond the economic implications but obviously that plays a big part of it but simply looking at the cultural and situational factors that kind of precluded Lyria from being able to experience any sort of benefits, any benefits at all within society in her entire life is still holding her back in the present. So that, that harkens back to the point that Ephraim makes all the time of you're still wearing a collar and it's, you're, you're still, you're still beholden to who you were before a little bit. And this is a great example of that in that she has been liberated, but she is still judged based on who she was beforehand. And I, I think it's really important to, and pretty obvious to take this and apply it to the American slavery abolition And the position that former slaves found themselves in after the abolition, where they were essentially forced to still work on these plantations for really fucking meager pay because it's all they could do. It's all they knew. Yeah, the the advent of sharecropping is really kind of an extension of the same sort of thought process, which is also interesting as we think about the way that like Deanna reflected on this beforehand. It's like, well, if I could solve the problem, I don't know if it's better necessarily for the Reds themselves, because ultimately they're going to be dragged out into systems that they don't understand. And the skills and the worlds and the cultures that have been built are going to be so removed from the other experience that there's no way you can just create and pull that out of nowhere. And but at, at the same time, that's still a hard argument to make as a reason why not to liberate slaves. Cor- correct. Agreed. Agreed. You should not keep the system in place just because you don't have the adequate post problem solution, which is ultimately what the society did. That's what Darrow has been fighting for is regardless, we need to liberate the slaves and give them an opportunity. Now, the question is the, the sort of like, Moral imperative of society, of the society that Darrow wanted, was to improve the conditions of all. But we've seen firsthand that it's not improving as quickly as it should or as it was thought that it could. And kind of this entire series is dealing with the reflection on revolution and what comes after a revolution. And so So I, I think what's important to note there and kind of tying all of this together is that even if it's not better and even if it's exactly the same as it was before 
at least now there is a path forward and there is an ability to move forward from where it's at as opposed to being stuck where you were before the liberation even though the reds aren't necessarily treated better in this scenario they have the ability to move forward within the society so it's i would it's the only- not that darrow won but he made the circumstance for the for the reds to keep going forward whereas create, they had none before i would create a very fine line with what you're saying between ability and um i'm i'm for drinks ability. and i know i'm choosing the wrong words but. right no and and you're and you're good what i what i want to extract is it's not ability because that's that's specifically what Lyria talks about in this section, in this like little moment, is that she actually doesn't have the ability. Yes, it is opportunity. And that is really what kind of it, it is the potential for Reds to change their fate over time. And that that is a good thing. It's not a perfect thing, but it's a good thing. Yeah. And it's I, a good I think a lot of people get hung up on the idea that with the revolution and with the rising and with the overthrow of the society things will immediately get better and they won't maybe that was the ideal goal and maybe that was the thing heralded as the as the goal but i think the i like to think that darrow was a little bit smarter than that and knew that it wouldn't change overnight but knew that without doing this it would never change at all i think that's the most important clarification to say is without doing this it would never change at all and even the even if the change is only a percentage, that percentage change over a long enough time is, is important to generations and generations of humans and right. humanity, et cetera. But, you know, it's 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 a tough topic. We've kind of derailed, but I think it's an important derailment. And it definitely it, it is the reason that Lyria's perspective is so important is because she provides this lens of the larger picture of the society. And that's, I think so many people can miss that when buzzing through this book and just like looking and Pierce Brown has kind of conditioned us to do this. So I don't blame people for thinking about it this way, but buzzing through Lyria because it's not action packed is, is a mistake. I agree. I don't think I would have agreed before this chapter, but I completely agree. Fair. So the trip to the museum, I think, is an interesting one. We, we of course, know why one of the exhibits was closed. The whole heist from Ephraim is, uh, is very well documented in previous chapters in the book. You can go read it. I think the image that we get, though, from the Hall of Screams sticks with me as it's a real manifestation of the vile violence that the Jackal extricated on the Reds while Darrow was in the box and he was in control of Mars. And another moment where this book really kind of builds out the world within the previous books without being fully revisionist of what of the text that came before. How do you feel? Oh, man, I, I'm trying to think of where it was. I think it was D.C., the Holocaust Museum there. Yeah, there's the the hallway of shoes from the prisoners. Yeah, like that is clearly exactly what he's pulled from reality and put into this situation. And it's heavy, man. This is obviously just an exhibit and there are exhibits in different museums that deal with this, but there are also entire museums like the one I just mentioned in DC dedicated to the Holocaust, which I, I have no doubt that that's exactly what Pierce was trying to invoke here. So it was, it was heart wrenching and it was deep and it was very, very, very well done. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Again, just another moment that builds on Lyria's perspective, adds coloration of other components of the 
the world, the Republic, and how kind of the general public feels about things. And we've been constantly guided through sort of fill in or draw in color in the lines. We've been given the lines and we're supposed to kind of color in the details. And Iron Gold very much feels like we're we're getting the color for us. We don't need to we don't need to take the mental effort to strain ourselves to think about each individual component as much. Right. Yeah. Whew, that that shit is heavy. So we we move on from the sort of heavier commentary into the back half of the Lyria section. The first half being very heavily Republic focused. The back half being about this theft for the most part that appears to happen to Agilia Alvarelius for stealing her bracelet in a crowd. We know, of course, because we're in Lyria's perspective, that she did not swipe said bracelet. It feels like maybe the other red that passed that was smoking definitely did, but we know Lyria didn't. What What did you make of that scene? I think it was a shame, but I think it it, it shows the harsh reality of where they're living right now. And even though the reds are technically free and equal they're still the lowest they're still looked down upon and they're still blamed no matter what regardless of evidence regardless of the fact that she doesn't have the fucking bracelet on her the entire time when she's being questioned like she's red she was next to me so clearly she stole my bracelet that's it Mm -hmm. and it's it's a shame it's tragic i will i will ask do we know anything about the virelius's no, we or know absolutely will we? nothing. Do we? This is this a name that I should like commit to memory? I mean, maybe. Um, I'm not going to answer that question. What I will say is that to me, this reads like a Karen moment because she like drops <laughs> yeah, the name of the senator and things like that. Yeah, in, exactly. in sort of response, like I know powerful people, blah blah blah. Like, yeah, it's all like, yeah, it's just stupid. Yeah, it's really dumb. So, I agree with you, and I feel you there. Yeah, it's it's a shame. Truly, totally. And then after the arrest of Lyria or the kind of like interesting diffuse the situation arrest of Lyria, which I think is an injustice in and of itself because there isn't really any proof or even close evidence that this happened. Just a couple of like couple of cases of hearsay that are basically resulting in her being thrown into the paddy wagon here. Felipe, a gold steps in or not a gold, a gray steps in an old gray man comes out and helps her out of her bind and very nearly her potential arrest. What did you make of the conversation with the other grays about their time within the military? I thought it was a really cool experience. We got to see the kinship of some humble soldiers within Darrow's war. There was obviously, obviously a lot of death in the, the wake of the Reaper if you want to call it that. But like many war heroes, they don't really mention the the death and destruction so much when they're talking to each other, but still have a meaning, meaningful conversation about it. And there's there's almost this weight to the conversation where they, they, they just silently acknowledge that both of them experienced a whole lot of death and a whole lot of destruction. And they just kind of talk around it and... They know it's there, but they they talk about everything else and just kind of silently nod to each other about what they experienced together and create that that bond, that kinship, that family, that whatever, as far as what what veterans of a of a large war experience when they meet each other. So I don't know. That's the vibe I got off of it. I'm not I'm not going to pretend to understand what it means to be a veteran or what it means to 
meet somebody who who went through war in the same way that you did but and you you as in the not the veteran and crossing at large in the audience yeah Yeah, right so i'm not gonna pretend to to have that experience but my understanding of it seems to seems to line up with that yeah i I definitely agree. And I think it's interesting how they kind of roll through those moments. You know, I've been to a number of VFWs over the years for various components, friends, family, etc. And with a couple of people that have been kind of life mentors and listening to a lot of the stories, you can kind of you feel that sort of familiar beat of recounting similar things and, and just kind of the sort of inside code language that happens with people who know what they know. And yeah. it felt very real in this moment. And I, yeah. It, Definitely. It, was, it was great in that way. Philippe extracts. Is it Philippe or Felipe? Felipe, Philippe, Felipe. It's Felipe. Felipe extracts Lyria from the situation and as a form of repayment asks to take Lyria around to see the sights and help her explore the city Give and give him an ear to chew off in the process. What do you make of their like budding friendship and what do you make of Felipe in general? God, it was adorable so cool it's so good wasn't it i loved every minute of it felipe seems like just a he seems like a lonely guy clearly he is he he's a person who wants to share his life with somebody and had that person to share it with and it was cut short so he's for whatever reason clicked with lyria and is able to in an accelerated time span share some really deep intense stuff with her and she feels the same way and is able to share oh, shit that she hasn't shared with anybody yet it, it, i loved it i loved felipe as a character because it is exactly what lyria needed and lyria seems to be exactly what he needed as well yeah there's there's a nice nice overlap of bonding that happens here in the moment and it feels just so so important and critical between the two of them, it feels like it's exactly the medicine that Lyria needed for sure. I personally love my favorite moment between the two is uh, when they're out at the restaurant and Felipe says, two more martinis, insidiously dirty, you charmer. And it's it's just that. And then it's a combination. You already mentioned them, but like the the moments that they find and they place in each other, it, it, the sort of like trust and heartwarming moments and the friendship that's kindled here just feels so real and so deep. And it gives Felipe this sense of depth that I can't wait to see him again, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So obviously Lyria is not a wordsmith. Not at all. She's pretty blunt about everything. But even through that and through the sort of awkward, abrupt conversations that happen, they're able to pretty deftly acknowledge each other's pain in a really beautiful way. And I, I hope Lyria contacts him going forward and they they maintain their friendship and felipe becomes a recurring character in this story because i i thought they brought out the best in each other or at least felipe brought out the best in lyria so i'm hopeful and excited to see where that goes going forward yeah yeah i could not agree more it's just it's so wholesome so good it, it is in <laughs> all this death and destruction this is like just kind of a wholesome respite this mm-hmm. back half of the chapter. Yeah, yeah. It's like, especially for the episode, it's a nice note to end on considering all the shit we went through for most yeah. of this episode. And I think that's also the way that it's intended to be for the for the regular reader at home. You know, it's not it's meant to propel you forward, but at the same time, like 
you could sleep tonight and it'll be okay just like it'll be okay for lyria i the the final the final kind of note of the chapter is the moniker little rabbit that's been sticking throughout this whole thing gets me and his like joking hop away and then her return to the bunk at the citadel finally having made a friend is just all of that is still like oh like it's got this nice warm it's the only time that this kind of feeling has really happened and like friendships can be so interesting to portray but like an awe friendship we haven't gotten that in this series we haven't like had a real i don't know like down-to-earth connection like roke and tactus and and cassius have all been friends of darrow but friends of of circumstance of fortune of danger not of of choice of you know the familiarity of openness you know there, there are yeah. so many different adjectives that you could throw in here that i'm sure are better than what we're saying right now because we're at the end of the episode and like you said we're four drinks in but yeah it just it's sharp it's emotional it's resonant there's a, a, a another layer to what makes this so adorable and so genuine and realistic is the the fact that he starts bunny hopping away and after two, two hops he like crumples on his bad knee that was clearly like a war or like injury that he's lived through and has been sustaining but him after that turning around and smiling at her and then walking off he did that for her he did the hop away for her and even though he kind of crumpled and kind of wasn't able to fully maintain himself through it he knows that maybe it brought her some joy and that's all that he wanted so it it was cute above all else this is the only cute chapter in the entire (laughs) series so far i i could not agree more with that take it's not even the whole chapter either it's like half the chapter (laughs) yeah right it's it's precisely half the chapter because the first half is reflective and brutal and evocative in its own right and the back half is yep and then the back half has this entirely different tone of warmness and friendship and oysters and warmness warmness warmth 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 warmness (laughs) (laughs) that's what happens with four drinks um yeah yep there you go so with that anything else that you want to comment on no i think we did a pretty good job of covering most everything in all of these chapters i think we nailed it so i think it's worth moving into your predictions we've got three today and so the three predictions the first one and again we've sort of switched this up a little bit so actually pj is crafting the predictions i'm helping them refine them a little bit but i'm not misleading pj we just want to capture his intentions as he thinks about the story going forward so i don't want to mislead him I don't want to create or spoil any of like, that or spoil. There, there's there's some like meta spoiler kind of deal. Like if he says, yeah. what do you think of what's happening with Lysander and Cassius with this specific thing? That's all I'm going to be thinking about. So I we, we kind of decided to move towards me putting forward questions of what I already have on my mind while reading this section. So it's not any sort of meta spoiler. Without a doubt. So the predictions as they stand, what happens to Cassius and Lysander, now guests of Dido, our raw. So I think Lysander, not not as Lysander, I think he'll still be whatever his moniker is, casters it. I think he'll slowly start bringing up the the official explanation of what happened at Ganymede and 
express some doubt in it and try to kind of get in their good graces and hope to kind of have some meaningful conversations with them on that because that's mutually beneficial without them really knowing that it's mutually beneficial. I think I think both of them after that will become, I don't know, Aaron boys, I guess. They're going to take Serafina's spot in trying to look for evidence and look for things specifically within the core airspace, space, space, <laughs> space, space. So there's deniability when it comes to breaking the Paxilium and Seraphine is not in danger. It's kind of a win-win in that respect. And they get off the planet. So, you know, another win there. All right. Seems good. What happens when the Minotaur wakes up? He better be fucking chained down and then like chained down again because he's going to be out for some blood (laughs) once he wakes up. He is not going to be a reasonable person to deal with for a a little while. I think it's going to be a whole lot of trying to calm him down before they can actually talk to him and explain what's going on. And then eventually they'll like strike a deal with him, whatever it is. Demands a nightmare. <laughs> yes, really, he is. I really just don't Absolutely. know what else to say. I don't. I don't know where else to contribute uh, because I shouldn't. So I'm gonna. We're gonna move on. We're gonna yep. move on to the next question. Good work. Go. Good answer. All right. Does word of Lyria's near arrest make it to Cavax and the Telemonuses? I think it does. I think quietly, and I think in a non-official capacity. But I think Cavax hears about what happened, and I think he's probably fairly like sympathetic towards her but i think he mostly just brushes it off maybe maybe gives her some tips on what to say in situations like that but doesn't really give that much help because he doesn't have that like he doesn't have experience in that he doesn't know what to fucking do it's not as it might be like it might be what he feels is genuine like heartfelt advice on what to do but it's going to be completely useless to her you know totally yeah definitely get that so okay well that's it for this week so next week we will be reading through chapter 35 should be a good time we've got six chapters up next week to read through i'm I'm pretty excited are you excited for what comes next of course always that was the most you make me ever you make me sit and wait every week before i can read more stuff so (laughs) yes i'm excited (laughs) all right so next week we are reading through chapter 35 Crossland, do you have the hardcover page number of chapter 35 by chance? If, if anyone's wondering for what the uh, full cover page number is, you could actually also check our website at Words and Whiskey Show, wordsandwhiskey.show forward slash schedule. Uh, but the page number is 286 to 349. So we have a long week next week. 64. No, we're, we're starting at 222. Pages. No, that's yes. chapter 25. You're right. 286 286 325 349 349 286 to 349 286 to 349 you heard it here from me pj first folks 286 to 349 you heard it here from me third if you forget that absolutely go to words and we've got our calendar up there now Crossland, make sure it's up to date, but he's probably wrong. So take it with a grain of salt. I have everything through Dark Age mapped out. I know you do, but you're also wrong. 
check out words whiskey pod on both instagram and twitter by the way let's pull that up right now i posted my cocktail at the beginning of when we started recording the show let's see i think we've got like two oh we've got a few comments we've got um, three names we've got three comments we've got sucker punch the sad from- boy based on Ephraim. so sucker punch is from no wheels mcgee which is Bingham, which is Crossland's brother. So he's out based on nepotism alone. <laughs> Continue. Kevin Friday said the sad boy based on our boy Ephraim, which good name. But I think this is what I'm going to go with from Big Hank Ross, Mateo's Kiss. It could I think be I'm going Big with Mateo's Han- Kiss. It could be Big Hand Cross. It's not. <laughs> it's Big it's Hank big. Ross. <laughs> We know that because uh, your name is too unique and dumb. So, fair. Big Hank Ross, congratulations. You named our cocktail Mateo's Kiss. So, you'll actually also get credit on our website. So, yeah, we'll put uh, PJ, don't forget. That will be on the website. (laughs) So, other than that, suggest us to friends, like, comment, whatever, uh, review us on podcatchers of your choice and uh that's going to help us reach more people and the more people we reach the better off we are the better the the better we are to serve you content that you hopefully like so yeah that's definitely the best way to put it the we are we're able to leverage more the more that we're provided this way and we don't have to lean into things like advertisements and and whatnot there so the 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 more that you interact with us on any form of social media or otherwise lends us strength, of course, and refers to your friends and family. Uh, and then, of course, the reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular are shockingly important. You you you'd be incensed at how angry I am at the idea that Apple controls the review market so fervently, but yeah. they do, and so we rely on them. They really and control the entire such, podcast market, other than spotify and amazon right like most podcatchers draw from the apple repository if i'm not mistaken most yes even spotify and amazon both do you can submit rss directly but on a long enough timeline they'll just pick it up from apple because apple is pretty much the primary aggregator of the xml so without getting too hyper specific the part that apple really controls is the recommendation engine on their end even though we see Spotify deriving a ton of traffic and creating its own sort of platform, there isn't a good recommendation engine that exists there without leaning on Apple's recommendations. So we know that so many of you there, there are so many of you that listen to us on Spotify. If you have an Apple account, leaving us a review there, even if it's just clicking the star count makes a huge difference. Uh, and you know, that's yeah. that's a great way of helping us out. There are a number of ways to help us out, of course, uh, which we've already listed. So exactly at that, we are uh, taking off. We're leaving you. Have a good week. Sweet. <laughs>